Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Everything Economics. I am your host, Talia Murdoch, and would like to begin by acknowledging that we are fortunate to be able to gather on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people where this podcast is recorded. Today, I'm going to be talking about climate change. Not so much about whether or not it's real, the damage it would do to people and the economic impacts of it. Instead, I'll be exploring some ways that different communities around the world are fighting climate change and the successes or non-successes they have had. I want to do a more positive episode this week. I don't know about you, but when I think about climate change, I am for the most part filled with anger, frustration and existential dread, which I honestly don't think is overly dramatic given the serious threat it poses to mankind. So it is always reassuring to hear some good news stories about people coming together to take action against a shared problem and hopefully learn from them. Now, before I get into this, I just want to talk about climate change broadly and explain some things that I notice come up in a lot of conversations I have or see. The first one being about weather. Weather is a microsystem, looking at and forecasting what the temperature, wind, rain, etc. is expected to be or was for a specific area in the short term, most often over a 48-hour or 7-day period. Climate, in comparison, is a macro system that considers global average temperatures over decades. They are two completely different things. So when someone in the media or on Twitter talks about how climate change mustn't be real because their town or city is experiencing abnormally low temperatures, well, this is like comparing chalk and cheese. I listened to an interview on CBC maybe a month ago, and someone in northern Canada was talking about how they experienced 10 degree fluctuations in a day. What is two to three degrees of warming compared to that? Again, weather and climate are two completely different systems. While a change in the climate will often affect the weather, they aren't the same thing, and it always worries me when I see comparisons like this being made. Second, I want to talk a bit about man-made versus natural climate change, something which remains a contentious issue in the climate change debate. There are many people who do not believe that climate change has been fueled by the actions of man. And let's be real, the people pushing this agenda mostly benefit from fossil fuel industries or have been fed propaganda by the fossil fuels industry. Now, it is true that global average temperatures will fluctuate over time. We know there have been ice ages in history and then periods of warming, so the way the climate is currently changing is partially natural. But at least half of the climate change we are experiencing has been brought about by industrial activities undertaken by people. This has been proven. It was something that has been anticipated since the 1950s, perhaps even earlier, but was not scientifically proven until about five years ago. It's not like this discovery came as a surprise to the science community, but science does depend on validating hypotheses with credible research and facts. Unfortunately, though, even though it has been proven and is believed by some 99% of the scientific community, there is still a large group of people who disagree many of whom hold power over the economy and over society, which is distressing to say the least. The fact that this group of people don't believe in the science makes me wonder if they believe in other forms of science, like medicine and agriculture. I do wonder if they went to see 10 doctors and nine of them told them that they had cancer that needed to be operated on to treat, but one doctor said they were perfectly healthy. Would they argue those odds and skip out on the life-saving surgery? Because these are the same odds we are looking at, whether you believe in man-made climate change or not. 
climate change is real and human activity is contributing to at least, if not more, than half of it. And lastly, before I move on to what some communities are doing to address climate change, what even is it from an economic perspective? Simply put, man-made climate change is a market failure. A market failure is the economic situation defined by an inefficient distribution of goods and services in the free market. So what does this mean? Well, if you consider the market for carbon emissions, as a chart and in its most simple form, this market will have an upward sloping supply curve and a downward sloping demand curve. Where they intersect is the market equilibrium, where the demand for carbon emissions equals its supply. Remember, there will always be some carbon output in the world we live in. I'm not sure if we would ever have it reach zero, as it is correlated with economic activity. In an ideal world, this market would have perfect information. Everyone and everything would be able to send signals to the market, telling it how much carbon it wants emitted into the atmosphere. This is where the failure comes in. Because the environment doesn't get a fair say in the marketplace, and because people who try to give it a say are not prioritised, the supply of carbon emissions has been much higher than the demand for it, pretty much since the Industrial Revolution. As such, this market faces negative production externalities, and it is not efficient. The most efficient way to deal with these sorts of externalities is through taxes, and you can hear more about that in episode one of this podcast. So that is really how climate change has come to exist in this world. So what are some communities doing across the world to tackle climate change, despite there being little to no action being taken by world governments? Number one, something I know about happening in my home country, Australia. There is a city just south of Perth, Western Australia, called Fremantle, and there is a naval base there. This base, in partnership with state and federal government, implemented the Perth Wave Energy Project in 2010, a truly innovative energy solution that takes advantage of the natural ocean currents. Now, this is a renewable energy solution that I would love to see deployed worldwide. What it is, is large buoys anchored below the surface, connected to industrial rope and pipes and a bunch of other stuff I don't need to get into or even understand. Now, as the buoys move back and forth with the current, the ropes and stuff pump high-pressured water onto shore and into a power generation system where it is converted into electricity. A byproduct of this as well is carbon-neutral desalinated water that can be consumed as drinking water really tackling another serious challenge for the city and state at large. There are two buoys off the base, which power it, as well as up to 3,500 surrounding households every year. I will provide a link to the project website on cavegoblins.com if you want to read more about it. I honestly think this is just so cool. If investment into the project was expanded, production could become more efficient over time, and this could really be used by so many coastal towns and cities across the world to generate electricity and provide drinking water, all while lowering carbon emissions. On top of this, this project created 30 jobs in the construction phase and continues to employ people. The benefits of renewable energy projects like this are vast in both the short and long terms. I love thinking about the potential of what could be achieved if projects like this were done Tapping into strong ocean currents like the Lewin Current or the East Australian Current, which are long, powerful and fast. 
So that was a bit about the Perth Wave Energy Project. Now I'm going to talk about the Zero Waste 2040 initiative here in the city of Vancouver. Vancouver wants to be the world's greenest city. And compared to many other places I have visited in the world, I think it's doing a pretty good job at offering certain services and getting people on board. And this is just one element of it. Already, the city of Vancouver offers recycling and composting services to its residents. So a lot of everyday packaging is recycled or reused in some way, like cardboard boxes, milk cartons, plastic takeout containers, as well as food scraps, leftovers and yard trimmings that would otherwise go to landfill. The initiative outlined three key priorities that will influence and inform the city's direction. These priorities are to build a zero waste community, to value resources, and to support a circular economy. I really like the concept of valuing resources. According to their website, in 2016, households and businesses in Vancouver sent 371,000 tonnes of garbage to landfill that could have otherwise been turned into something else that would add value to the community. If people think about waste in a different way, considering it as a resource with additional benefits it might have beyond their own use of it, then we can expect less garbage to be thrown away over time and therefore less waste to exist. The city has already undertaken a lot of public advertising and education about recycling, how to do it and why it's important, as well as doing more direct things like collecting garbage bi-weekly while collecting compost and recycling weekly. These are some really simple and effective ways to influence human behaviour. By doing this, along with everything else outlined in their strategic plan, the City of Vancouver is trying to realise the environmental, economic and social benefits that occur within a zero-waste society. For example, greenhouse gases are reduced when the amount of materials disposed and therefore created falls, further lowering the city's carbon footprint. Economically speaking, costs to the city will drop as they are dealing with less waste and landfill, Likewise, if households are using less things, buying items in bulk, reusing and repairing consumer goods, then their costs also go down. A zero-waste community also presents business opportunities for its residents. And finally, socially, zero-waste living can help connect people with various programs, improve their sense of belonging within a circular economy and society, and of course provide employment and income opportunities for everyone. Becoming zero waste by 2040 is an ambitious goal, but if the city and its people stick by its strategic plan, I have confidence that this can be achieved, as it is really thorough and planned out, and I will link it on our website. So the final climate change initiative I want to talk about in this episode is the Low Carbon Agriculture Program in Brazil. Agriculture, growing food, is obviously essential to society and the economy at large. Food is how we fuel ourselves and also how we connect and communicate with one another. Unfortunately, it is also a major contributor to greenhouse gas emissions across the world. Brazil specifically is one of the major producers of beef, soybeans, coffee and sugarcane and therefore emits huge amounts of carbon into the atmosphere. Brazil is the fifth largest carbon emitter in the world and agriculture and land use change plays a large part of this, accounting for about 55% of the nation's total emissions. Now, I can't remember if I've mentioned this sort of thing before or not, but it is important to remember that 
a huge portion of these emissions are effectively imported from the rest of the world because Brazil grows so much of the world's food. So they aren't alone in being responsible for this. Identifying this problem, the government in 2010 enacted the National Plan for Low Carbon Emissions in Agriculture. Now, I don't know if this is still around or being invested in since the highly conservative government came into power recently, but I still want to talk about it. Part of this plan saw lines of credit become available to farmers who were able to lower their emissions. As a policy tool, direct action like this doesn't really work though, and taxes or trading schemes are far more effective. One of the biggest challenges faced by the government is that agriculture emissions are hard to track. They're highly influenced by environmental conditions like soil moisture and temperature. And doing things like planting trees to offset emissions production may not reduce them immediately. So as a response to this, and to make the low carbon plan more achievable, a tool and guide was created that allows farmers to easily measure the greenhouse gas emissions they produce. This provides policymakers and farmers alike with reliable information and data that can be used to set targets and make plans to lower the industry's environmental impact. Now, unfortunately, the ambitious plan, great on paper, was not as effective as it set out to be. For starters, not that many farmers took out the low interest loans to make their practices more environmentally friendly, as they had other priorities like meeting food demand. This is an example of direct action not really working. On top of this, there was a lack of knowledge of the program among farmers in the country, and they didn't necessarily have the technical capacity to change their practices, despite the cheaper lines of credit available to them. The application process was highly bureaucratic, involving a lot of paperwork and the need to be registered with the Rural Agriculture Regulator, to which many farmers were not, nor wanted to be. So while the initiative was ambitious and had great potential to reduce emissions by incentivizing better management of natural forests, developing commercial forest plantation, and working with the natural environment rather than against it, it just didn't have the infrastructure and tools in place to see it succeed in the way that was planned. Education and training are key to this type of project success, and I hope that this has informed other projects like it. So that brings me to the end of today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it and are inspired to go and find out what cool things might be happening in your community that tackle climate change. These sort of stories give me a bit of hope. You can follow the show on Twitter at Every Economics or find the whole network at Cave Goblins across all social media platforms. If you're interested in coming on the show, please reach out to me. I would love to collaborate. I really want to try to do more work with other people and learn about interesting research and projects happening at all levels. As always, thank you so much for listening. Be kind to each other. I am Talia Murdoch, and this has been Everything Economics. I was told that once, the earth was shaped like a dish. This was a time before mortals or the law. That time has long since passed, and no one tells those stories anymore. All they care to tell these days, over and over again, are the tales of Frost Cricket. Hear them all on the Cave Goblin Network. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.